Um, I normally uh, weekly or monthly teach breakout, so if I start talking to you, I'm, I'm right here on breakout, so if I start talking to you as if you're three or eight years old, just tell me. Uh, hopefully I won't talk down to you. <laughs> You'll be all right, yeah. Um, thank you, Jerry. Uh, my wife and I are happy to be here at Gulf Coast, and that was a great words of advice for us, uh, and, and me in particular, to... Um, stay at, stick it out at one place uh, where it is healthy, where a church is growing, and um, not just flying into a church situation that you have no idea what's going on. And we're happy to be here. I'm happy to do this. Um, we're te- te- I'm teaching on Jesus, so um, pretty broad, but uh, we're going to try to narrow it to a few points that I feel most comfortable and most uh, are most important for us tonight. There's a few books, if you go to the next slide, that I do recommend I um, have here, and there's a lot of others that I'm, or a couple others I may mention that I don't have that might be on the, uh, my Kindle or something. Um, uh, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied by John Murray is an absolutely great book, not just to know more about Jesus, but uh, to know uh, what Jesus has uh, done for us and what's, what the... Uh, uh, what the um, the crucifixion has done for us as believers. Uh, the Messiah in the Old Testament, another very good book um, to to learn uh, who Jesus is uh, from the Old Testament. It just he's very thorough, and it's it's also readable. It's not um, just academic. Uh, Wayne Grudem, I think we have this in the resource uh, room. Systematic theology. It's one of the my first books that I ever picked up when I didn't know that there was such thing as systematic theology. I was so happy that there was something that explained the Christian faith. Um, I became a Christian in college, so didn't really know too much before that. And the Forgotten Trinity, a very good book to better understand the Trinity, which is something that I think is uh, neglected by uh, most of us um, nowadays. But uh, as church history shows us, it has been something that is of utmost importance and what people bled and died for throughout history. Um, so we're going to start uh, talking about systematic theology in general and not as something that's dry. And I'm glad you're all here. Uh, I wish everybody in the whole church was here because this isn't just to learn uh, so that we can fill our brains with news about Jesus or other doctrines that we'll learn about. It's worship, uh, and I think a lot of us forget that. Um, it's not a dry subject. It's something that should affect the way we live. And the more we learn about Jesus today, hopefully that will uh, change our lives as well. Uh, explains the very God who created the universe and died on the cross for our sins. And uh, as Christians, the law leads us to repentance. So knowing that uh, we have not kept the Ten Commandments, we have not loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that leads us to repentance. But um, I've also learned throughout my life, learning about uh, God and the things he's done for us, that God's kindness also leads us to repentance. And as we learn about what Jesus has done for us today, I want that to be a, a, an act of worship to repentance. Uh, it might not, you might not fall down and, and repent, but learning about what he's done will make you want to serve him. And I found throughout my life, the more I learn about Jesus, the more I want to serve him. So it does act as a, as a kind of repentance. Um, let's go to the next slide, please. Um, I grew up in a Christian home where we went to church. I was not, and my parents were not Christians. We all are now, to God be the glory. Um, 
But I just saw a YouTube video a couple days ago uh, in God's providence that a guy was going around asking people who is Jesus, when did he die? And of course there were some right answers generally, but the average was the 1200s and the 1300s of when Jesus died. And these are these are 25, 35-year-old people. Um, and they also, surprisingly, the guy asked them if they thought Jesus would still be alive if there were stricter gun laws, and a lot of people actually said yes. So, needless to say, people don't know who Jesus is. Um, we take it for granted that the calendar is changed because of him, but people don't even know that. Um, all that to say... People know as much about Jesus as they know about Shiva, about Buddha, about uh, Muhammad. And as we learn today, um, I think we need to be thorough and when we're talking to people because people don't know. People just don't understand or know who he is because we don't live in a Christian country or Christian world. We uh, many times are post-Christian and people have no background on these things. Uh, Next slide, please. Starting our scriptures are our ultimate, our, our ultimate authority when we're talking about Jesus. They are the God-breathed theanustas. Um, scriptures that where we get everything. Theology here is not speculative. It is something that is based on fact. So when we talk about the resurrection, it's not something necessarily that we believe, which we do. It is something that actually happened. Um, it's not just about believing in the resurrection. It is an actual fact. And... Um, the whole New Testament is is uh, or Christianity totally depends on the record of the New Testament as well the, as well as the Old Testament, but in general, uh, in specific, I should say, the New Testament record. Um, it is based on how things are and not on how things we think are supposed to be. Um, so let's start with a really uh, big word on our next slide here. Yes, it's called the hypostatic union. That's just a very fancy theological word to say that Christ is one person with two natures. He's not, um, he's, he's not, uh, he's not, what am I trying to say here? He's not two persons, uh, kind of bipolar or something like that. He is one person. He is fully human, and that's what we're going to start with here. And um, I don't know if you've seen movies or different representations or pictures of Jesus where he's floating, he has a halo, he has this or he has that. He looks like a normal guy. Um, there was nothing that attracted people to him, I believe, in Isaiah it says. Um, let's go to the next slide and talk about the virgin birth. Throughout history, virgin birth, very hot topic. Um, theological, uh, we'll call liberals, uh, have denied it for many, many years, and they think of it as an impossibility, uh, which is surprising because they believe in God and believe that he can't do something, uh, such as the virgin birth. Um, but if we believe in God, how can it not be a possibility, is my first argument to this. Um, if you believe God created the universe, how could it not be possible? Uh, that's, that's how I always uh, address the question, is, is if you believe God created the heavens and the earth, why couldn't he do that? I mean, it just seems absurd to not, to not believe it, especially when it's so evident in the scriptures. And since the scriptures are our ultimate authority, authority, we must affirm it as well. It would be foolish and dangerous to do otherwise. And um, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to start in Matthew, the, the Gospel of Matthew, first chapter, uh, and, and just showing you the, the, the record of the virgin birth. In Matthew 1.18, we see 
Uh, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she found to be with child. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And going on in verse twenty, it says, "But but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This is Joseph, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." And after this, in verse 24 and 25, we see the obedience of Joseph. It says, when Joseph woke from that sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And also, uh, moving on to the Gospel of Luke in the first chapter. Uh, we're going to be going through a pretty good amount of scriptures today. Because um, to, to, since that's where we're basing everything, um, I'd like to go straight to the source. In Luke's uh, Gospel, the first chapter, uh, 35, verse 35, it says, And as the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And we see here, um, he is called Holy, and we'll talk about that in a little more. Um, main question is, is it important? Is the virgin birth important or not? I would say, uh, not only is it important, but it, it is of, uh, of utmost importance to have a consistent faith. Um, a lot of things stem out of the virgin birth of what we believe about Jesus. Now, can you be a Christian and not believe in the virgin birth? I would say yes, but you'd be an heir, and it wouldn't be something that would be long term. So, uh, a new Christian might not understand the virgin birth or some of the more technical things about the Trinity, of course. However, over time, they will learn and the Holy Spirit will convict them of what is true. So if someone does have a wrong view of God in some way, don't immediately think that they're not a Christian. They might just not understand it. Um, I, I just want to be careful with that. But at the same time, it's, it is something that needs to be corrected. Uh, the virgin birth is, is uh, also shown, um, not directly, but in Genesis, if you go to right after the fall in chapter 3, um, we see the seed of the woman, it's called. And um, let's get to that real quick here. Seed of the woman. Okay. Start at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. In verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see here the seed of the woman will destroy the serpent, not through human doing. And it also uh, pointing towards the seed is coming from God. And we later see that that seed is Jesus. And um, we see that this is of God in Galatians chapter 4. Uh, Galatians is, is probably my favorite uh, book of, of the New Testament just because of how plain it shows uh, our need for Christ. And uh, going to Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you know, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, next slide, please. The virgin birth is truly the only way we can reconcile uh, the full deity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ. And um, in a second here, we're going to be talking about um, a, a mediator. Uh, and we know that Christ must be a man in order to take our place on the cross. And um, throughout the Old Testament, obviously you know throughout the law, the blood of bulls and goats uh, and animals were sacrificed year after year, day after day, uh, pointing towards that one perfect sacrifice that was to come. And I believe it's in Proverbs that says, uh, the, for the blood of bulls and goats has never um, uh, taken away sins. It was always to point towards Christ. And we're going to be talking about that more as, as we go along. They were to point people to the need for a perfect sacrifice, not one done every year. And that's why Jesus is sitting down at the throne of God now, because it is finished. We need a perfect sacrifice. Christ also must be God in order to be that perfect sacrifice. So he needs to be fully human in order to take our place. He needs to be fully God to uh, be a perfect sacrifice. Because if we break one commandment in James, it says we have broken them all. If Christ was not born of a woman, it would be very hard for us to see him as fully human. And that pretty much comes from the question of people saying, well, why couldn't God just create Jesus 30 years old as a human and fully human and fully God? Well, there's a lot that goes into that as Jesus grew and learned and matured as a human. Uh, In fact, it is only by the virgin birth that Christ can be fully God and fully man. And and fully man is is what I mean there, um, learning year by year. As he grew. Next slide, please. That's it. That's a good slide. <laughs> um, in Luke one thirty five, which we talked about earlier, we saw that Jesus was called holy, uh, which points us to his divinity. Um, no one else I know of in, in, the, in the scriptures has been born and called holy. So we see here um, a, a picture or a, a pointing towards his divinity. Um, also, the only way Jesus can be born of a woman without sin that has been... In, it, excuse me. It is the only way that Jesus can be born of a woman without sin that has been inherited from our parents. And we see that the seed of man is passed on generation to generation. And, and that's why we have original sin. It's, it's, it's um, passed on by, their parent, by your parents. Uh, Jesus did not have a human father. Uh, and as, as well, he did not have the original sin that every one of us gets. Uh, Wayne Grudem says, Jesus did not descend from Adam in exactly the same way in which every other human being has descended from Adam. And the question can be asked as to why Jesus did not inherit sin from Mary. Um, I didn't go really in depth in this. The Catholic belief is, is the Immaculate Conception, which says that Mary was sinless. That's how she was able to have, or yeah, sinless, which is how she was able to have a sinless Christ, which is not true because in her song she says she has a need for a savior. And then there's the question of, well, how did Mary's parents have a sinless daughter? Well, how did those parents have a sinless son or daughter? And it just keeps going back into absurdity. So as, as um, Protestants, we don't believe that. Um, we don't know, and, and basically, and this may come in questions, but we don't know exactly how Jesus did not inherit sin from Mary, but we can say that the Holy Spirit miraculously prevented the transmission of sin from Mary to Jesus. And to be honest, it's one of those things that 
for me, it doesn't shake my faith because I don't expect to understand everything about the incarnation of Jesus. It's just not something that I think we're ever going to grasp our head around, uh, but we're something we'll, about, we'll learn about throughout eternity. Um, moving on to the next slide about uh, Jesus being Israel's Messiah. Messiah is found about 39 or so times in the Old Testament, the word uh, which is translated Christ into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Old Testament written in Hebrew, translated into Greek as well. Um, also, so if you see Christ, that's kind of similar words. Um, it basically means anointed uh, and we see kings, prophets, and priests that were called anointed in the Old Testament, but only Christ fulfilled all three roles perfectly, uh, and those three roles are prophet, priest, and king, uh, which we will go into a little bit later if you go to the next slide. And, and one of the things also is Jesus has always been the Messiah to the Jewish people. And we see this as we just looked at Genesis 3.15. We see the need for a Messiah in Genesis 3.15. Uh, and we see that fulfillment that's about to come. Sometimes Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Euangelion, which is just a fancy Latin, I believe, uh, phrase for uh, the first gospel. or uh, Yeah, first gospel. Uh, in that, in Genesis 3.15, Jesus is prophesied by God himself to return and destroy the serpent. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this in what's called the scarlet thread of redemption, which starts with, uh, well, it starts in eternity past, but it starts at Genesis 3.15 that there would be a perfect sacrifice that would be given. And as the Old Testament, uh, as history moves forward, we see this opening up more and more and understanding it more and more until um, John the Baptist comes and then Jesus is baptized and uh, pretty much starts his ministry. And then after that, obviously, everything's revealed and we get the Romans, we get Galatians, we get First uh, Peter, we get all that revelation pointing back towards the Old Testament of, of uh, what all these things meant and we can interpret uh, it that way. Uh, the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, in fact, is pointing towards Christ in one way or another. Because the sacrificial system and God's law were never meant to bring new life, the people should have rightly understood their need for a Messiah or Savior. And Martin Luther says it well. He says, man is utterly bent in on himself, always trying to justify himself before God. And that is why throughout the Old Testament we see most people trying to justify themselves before God, and that's a lot what the Pharisees were doing as well. Um, to try to justify himself before God by his good works and his own righteousness, which is utter folly. And that's one of the other uh, important themes of the book of Galatians. Uh, moving on to Jesus as being fully human. We've seen before that he is fully human. We saw that starting with the virgin birth. And throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus did have and now does have a human body in heaven. It's not something that he always had. He became human. Jesus has always been God and will always be God. He was not human before the incarnation, which is when he, uh, this is the virgin birth, basically. Um, and I'm just going to go through some scriptures and, and read them to you instead of going through them all and just seeing evidences of the hum humanity of Jesus. We see in scriptures that Jesus had a human body, and we saw that through the virgin birth. Um, through his birth, we see him, and we also see him growing as a child in Luke 2.40. 
Jesus also got hungry and thirsty, just as we do. We see that in his temptation in Matthew 4. Uh, in John nineteen twenty eight. we also see him um, um, getting, I believe that's hungry at that part. Uh, it is ever-present that Jesus is human on the cross where he died. I mean, he's in agony on the cross. That's, uh, that's um, an obvious spot as well. It must also be noted here that Jesus also rose bodily as a human, albeit a glorified body. We see that in Luke twenty four thirty nine. Uh, it's not Jesus didn't raise uh, just... Uh, his deity didn't just raise, but his humanity and deity rose from the dead because death could not hold him down. It is also through, uh, Jesus' humanity is also seen through his soul and his emotions. We see Jesus weeping in John eleven thirty five. He was troubled in his spirit in John thirteen twenty one. Also um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him being troubled in spirit. He was sorrowful um, in Matthew twenty six thirty eight and other passages where he's sorrowful about the uh, hard heartedness of Israel. He was also tempted as we are yet without sin. Next slide, please. One of the crucial parts of Jesus' humanity is that man needed a mediator between himself and God, and we kind of touched on this a little more, but um, a little earlier. But I'm going to talk about it a little bit more. Uh, and we talked about Jesus fulfilling the role of prophet, priest, and king perfectly. He is our one mediator. I'm going to go to 1 Timothy 2, if you want to go there. 1 Timothy 2, verse... Let me start at verse... Uh, start at verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man... God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Man alone could not perfectly mediate between God and man. Man is sinful and God is holy. God could not alone mediate between man and himself. We needed a perfect representation of ourselves to God. Therefore, there is only one person who could fulfill that role, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And a lot of that, uh, a lot of the views in, in the uh, before Jesus' crucifixion were were the the apostles, the disciples, the the Jewish people in general, and the Pharisees wanted a different kind of savior. They didn't want one that went to the cross. They wanted a political king. They wanted a uh, someone who would get them out of the clutches of the Romans. Uh, but they were not pointing to that person that would free them from their real bondage, which was to their sin. And as I said before, just note again, it is imperative to note the people around him did not see him physically as God. If you looked at him, you wouldn't say, oh, there's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Uh, it just didn't happen. We are told that there is nothing about Jesus that would attract our attention to him physically. He was not hovering. He was not glowing. He did not have angels over him. He was an ordinary-looking man. And now moving on to the deity of Christ. He was fully divine and is fully divine as well as fully human. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
John wants us to know us to know as he starts his gospel who Jesus is, and, and obviously this is the first thing he starts with. This is of utmost importance to him. He is the Creator. We see that. It also later I'll talk about in, in, in the first chapter of John as well. In Colossians chapter one, starting at verse, uh, I'll start at verse fifteen. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, he, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, and I wrote here, Jesus was present in creation. Well, there's a lot more that, that goes in there. I should have um, elaborated. But we see John, uh, uh, Paul in, in Colossians pointing the, towards the divinity of Christ here. And we also see that in, in John chapter 1, verses uh, one through five, and I didn't read all of them, but I would like to, just to um, uh, extrapolate a little bit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there are people, uh, Muslims included, that do not believe that Jesus is God or was God. Um, but to call someone um, not only being in the beginning with God, but also calling him the light, there's not a human that's called the light either, the light that shines into the darkness. In the Old Testament, Exodus 3.14, Moses asks God, Yahweh, what his name is. He says, I am who I am. Jesus, in John 8.58, uh, one of the strongest uh, words of Jesus of his divinity, he is talking with the religious leaders, and he says here, Jesus, um, in verse 57, he's talking about knowing Abraham, and, and the, the religious leaders say, So the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus pointing himself back to be Yahweh of, of the Old Testament, and they obviously knew what he was talking about here, um, that Jesus was claiming to be God. They don't stone you for um, claiming to be a, a prophet. They, they stone you for blasphemy, and that's what they thought he was doing. Jesus is shown as being the judge of the living of the living and the dead in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And only God can be our ultimate judge. Next slide, please. In John 4, we see, uh, verse 12, we see Jesus as calling himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Once again, only deity can make this claim. It would be an outrageous claim for a mere human to make. Jesus is shown as the savior of the entire world in 1 John 4.14. And in the Old Testament, we see people put as saviors, uh, small s, if you will. Um, I'm thinking of Samson, savior uh, to the people, David, 
um, other people, but they were not that ultimate Savior. And again, all those people are pointing towards the one Savior. Their lives are not something to emulate first. It's it's to point us to the need for a uh, the, an ultimate Savior. Also in Psalm 23, we see Jesus is uh, is our shepherd. Jesus, like the Lord, uh, like Yahweh, is our shepherd. He leads us beside still waters. And uh, in Hebrews 13.20, um, let's go there real quick. As now made, this is his doxology, which is like his last saying at the end of the book here, uh, whoever the writer of Hebrews is. Now may the God of peace who, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do, that, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. To Jesus Christ, to, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not just a human. That's God. Again, he is our shepherd as well. Uh, we also see in, in um, Titus 2, 11 through 14, Jesus is referred to as God. And, and it's one of those things that you may not be able to find a verse in the New Testament where Jesus is specifically called God. Um, but in Titus, it definitely it definitely says that. So let's go there really quickly. Titus two eleven. Alrighty. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training or yeah, training us to renounce ungodliness and, and worldly passions, to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing. Of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purity for Himself, a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Doesn't get much uh, clearer than that. Uh, let's move on to the next slide. The incommunicable attributes, which are things that we do not possess, we possess the communicable attributes of God. We uh, love. We um, um, this is a, a I can't think of them right now, but the incommunicable attributes such as omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, uh, we find in Jesus as well, the things that are not common to us. We see him as omnipotent or all-powerful, for example, when Jesus calmed the sea or when he multiplied the loaves and the fish. We see him as omniscient or all-knowing. Uh, when Jesus knows people's thoughts. We see that a lot. He knows people's thoughts and then he makes a response because of him knowing what they were thinking or what they were going to say. Um, he does that to the Pharisees all the time. We don't see his omnipresence uh, in his earthly ministry. We don't see him as saying or, or, or as, as uh, being present everywhere in his earth, earthly ministry. But in Matthew 18.20, we see that Jesus says he will be with believers when two or three are gathered in his name which is, um, I believe that's a church discipline passage, but still, um, Jesus is with believers. The question um, I hear a lot, especially from Muslims, is say, why doesn't Jesus go around and just say, I'm God, worship me? Why didn't he do that? Because you don't see that in the New Testament. We see vaguer uh, uh, ways of pointing Jesus, uh, um, Jesus' divinity pointing at him. And Muslims always are asking this because they, they want that clear-cut um, Jesus to be like that. There's a lot of reasons. Uh, but just 
a couple. Jesus came for a specific purpose. Um, he wanted to go to the cross. He probably would have gotten stoned immediately if he did that. Uh, he had a mission from the beginning, from uh, eternity past. Jesus was was uh, coming to die on the cross for our sins. Uh, I would argue that he said a lot of things that were equivalent to saying, I am God. Um, and he did not shy away from people worshiping him, such as lepers. Uh, Thomas says, my Lord and my God, after his resurrection. Um, that is not something you say to somebody. Um, my God is not a, not him swearing. I've heard uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or, or Mormons say that was him saying, just swearing in front of Jesus, you know, blasphemy, um, which is just crazy. But uh, obviously that's not. Jesus healed and forgave sin. Either he did it through the power of Satan, which is what the Pharisees said, or was God, since only God can forgive sin. And we talked about, Jerry talked about today, that today actually. Going on to fully God, um, just a few aberrant and heretical views of, of who Jesus is. And I'll, I'll just name a few here. A really fun word, Apollinarianism. Uh, was taught by Apollinarius in, in uh, 361 or right around there, is the belief that Jesus had a human body but not a human mind or spirit. He only had a divine mind. Uh, this was rejected at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Uh, Christ needs to be fully human, as we have seen, in order to save us. Nestorianism, Jesus is two separate persons, both human and divine. We said earlier the hypostatic union is one person, two natures. Uh, this was taught by Nestorius in 5th century. His teachings, he put the deity and humanity of Christ at odds, thus teaching that there was a struggle of the persons of Christ. And there's some churches, the Assyrian Church of Christ teaches this still, and um, there are others, very small Nestorian groups. Docetism is taught that Jesus only seemed to have a body, making him not really incarnate. Uh, I believe from what I've learned, is dokeo in Greek means to seem. That's why it's called docetism, is that he seemed to have a body, uh, but he really wasn't fully human. Modalism, very uh, prevalent in today's church. It's not an ancient heresy. It is here. It is alive. It is huge. Um, it's one of the most common errors that denies the Trinity. God is one, they have that right, and has revealed himself in three forms at different times, Father, Son, Spirit. And they have never all existed at once. Modern hold, in other words, uh, I believe how a lot of them say it, Old Testament, God the Father, Jesus, obviously, New Testament, Jesus dies, now it's the Holy Spirit, not um, uh, the Trinity. And there are groups, the United Pentecostal Church teaches this, the Oneness Pentecostals teach this, and the United Apostolic Churches. One of the words that they like to use a lot is, Jesus was manifested. Manifest is their big word. If you see that word, red flag should go up. Not that we can't use that word, but if you see that, it should be something you're saying, okay, what do you mean by that? What do you mean he was manifested? Has Jesus been eternally, has Jesus eternally existed? And they would have to say no. He uh, kind of morphed into Jesus. The God the Father morphed into Jesus. Uh, another one, Arianism, developed in 320, named after get this, Arius. Many scholars believe that this heresy in particular was one of the most dangerous uh, in this time, in, in the fourth century. It almost overtook the entire church. And uh, we're going to talk about that right after this, why they were so uh, successful in the early church. People died blood over these heresies. These aren't just like, oh, these are neat. People died blood over these heresies. Uh, Arianism 
um, it teaches that God the Father is eternal and too pure to enter the earth. He created the Son out of nothing and sent him to earth. And it was also the Son, who is a created being, uh, that created the universe. They teach that the incarnation, that the divine nature overtook the human, thus denying the complete incarnation of Jesus. And a very, um, you see them probably once a year, I don't know how long, how often you guys see them, but the Jehovah's Witnesses are Arians. They, that's what they believe. Jesus is the half-brother of Lucifer, if you ever want to know who their Jesus is. It's a little different than what we believe. And one of the things that false teachers did, and it's what, funnily enough, how we remember commercials. You have little jingles that you remember. If you think of, you probably know hundreds of commercials because of the little songs they have at the end, so you remember them. Heretics kept making rhymes and songs for people to remember heresies. So that you have that in your head, and it's always in there. And that's the same approach that is used today with uh, commercials. It's just interesting to think that that's how it happened. People were able to remember these heresies by these little slogans and these little rhymes. Um, next slide, I have a graphic. I hope you can see it. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Trinity here um, as quickly as we can. Uh, this is the best representation I've seen of what the Trinity is, because it's really hard to describe it in a graphic, but we see the Son, the Father, and the Spirit here, and um, obviously the Son is not the Father, who is not the Spirit, who is not the Son, but all three are God, and they're all pointing towards that. So that's an easy way to to remember the Trinity. We can go to the next slide and talk about it a little bit. Um, A working definition of the Trinity, um, which is good to have, um, because I think a lot of times we, we find it hard to to explain to people. If someone asks you what the Trinity is, that's not an easy question. It's, it's, it's heady. In the book, The Forgotten Trinity, James White has a great definition that I think is just spot on. He says, Within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The first truth in this clause is that there is only one God, and we call this monotheism, in regards to our discussion, Jesus is not one of three gods. He is the one true God. In De- Deuteronomy uh, 4, 6 is the, called the Shema. It's here, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there is only one God, and we affirm that. Second, there are three divine persons. There are not three beings that are one being, or three persons that are one person. And again, or not again, but I should mention here, person, what I'm using in here is is not to mean a human being the way we use a person. It's more um, um, specific um, in, in how I'm using it. There are not three divine beings. There, and this is another, I don't know if you ever heard of Hank Hanegraaff. He has a good way to say it. There is, there is one what, one being, and three who's, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The what is the one being God, and the three who's are the Father, Son, and Spirit. Just one way to, so you understand it better, so I understand it better. And the third clause in this this definition is that there is an eternal relationship. All three persons are eternal. Each is fully God. None are one. None of them are one third God. Jesus is not third God. The Son or, or the Spirit is not one third God. And in regards to our discussion, Jesus is fully God. He became incarnate when he took on flesh, but never became divine. He was and always will be divine. Uh, next slide, please. 
quickly, uh, a good quote here. It's um, James White in, in his Forgotten Trinity says, suggest we remember that there is no inferiority within the Trinity, that just because the three persons do different things does not mean one is inferior to another. Uh, he says, think of it this way. In eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit voluntarily and freely chose the roles that they would take in, be, in bringing about the redemption of God's people. So it's not uh, subordinationism, not, you know, God, has the, God the Father has the final say and the Holy Spirit has the least amount of say and Jesus is kind of in the middle here because he's the second person in the Trinity. No, they're... they're they, they're in full communion. They, they have it all planned. Everything's good. Uh, moving on to the next slide. Okay. So we will be talking about the pre-incarnate appearances quickly. Uh, true that no one has seen God the Father. John 6.46 shows us this. Question raised in the Old Testament. What did people see when they encountered the Lord, when they encountered God? The answer, obviously, is Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus. In Genesis, God is walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. We see that uh, pointing towards the pre-incarnate son. I believe as Isaiah 6, uh, uh, see, uh, I saw the Lord seated on the throne and the, uh, the train of his robe has filled the temple. That is pointing towards Jesus as well, sitting on the throne, seeing Jesus as he truly is. Isaiah sees the pre-incarnate Christ in his full splendor. We also see the true response one should have when confronting who Jesus really is. Repentance and falling prostrate. And um, we also see there a forgiveness of sins from, from God towards Isaiah. As he says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Also, we see the commission given to Isaiah after his repentance as well, which is a neat kind of way that things work. We see, uh, we see his worship, we see his repentance, and then we see his commission to go out and speak to a dying people. Theologians for many ages have been widening, have called the widening of understanding of the Old Testament of Christ the scarlet thread of redemption, and we just talked about that a little bit. And there are throughout the Old Testament Christ types. We see this in the judges. A lot of the judges are pointing towards Christ, and judges in general should. Um, King David we see as well, and through many other people, we also see events in the Old Testament pointing towards Christ. David and Goliath is an example. This should point us towards Christ. Noah's flood pointing towards what Christ has done, the Exodus. I mean, these are uh, bigger ones that a lot of us know, but needless to say, they all point to Christ. And it is folly that we see in the modern day preaching that these stories are ones to be emulated first by ourselves. Um, this is not the case. A phrase that is often used uh, a lot nowadays is called Christ-centered teaching or preaching and man-centered. And um, we don't want to be man-centered. We don't want to put ourselves in those stories in the Old Testament. We want to put Christ in there and say, how does this point towards him? Okay, going next to the sinless life. Jesus is absolutely sinless, and we call this the active obedience of Christ. In other words, he perfectly kept God's law and commandments. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 uh, shows us the sinless, sinlessness of Christ. Let me go there real quick. I believe it's he himself. Uh, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is called the great exchange, as Martin Luther puts it. Uh, we have talked about the necessity of Jesus' sinless life 
Um, but let's go through a little bit deeper. And the entire book of Galatians is predicated on the fact that people were either trying to be justified by the law, law or sanctified by the law. And we see in Galatians 3 that sums up the full foolishness of this attempt. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It is before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? So we see the, the necessity of Jesus' sinless life there and our utter failure to keep the law. And it's only because we have a perfect sacrifice that we can boldly go to the throne room of God. Go to the next slide. Big question, could Jesus have sinned? Um, I'm not going to get caught up on it. I'm not going to talk about a lot about it. Uh, there's all kinds of beliefs and understandings because how can God be tempted? It says God can't be tempted, right? But Jesus was tempted. Um, and I have here, and, and Wayne Grudem's systematic theology helped me a lot. He says, Jesus being both fully God and fully man was tempted in his human nature, but we also know that God cannot be tempted. So all we can say is that Jesus was tempted as a man. I am not trying, and this is me, I'm not trying to divide the hypostatic union or the two natures of Christ uh, here to make it look as Jesus was bipolar. Uh, scripture basically does not tell us how the two intertwine. And I believe this is second to last before resurrection. Um, we're talking about the atonement. Death, atonement is not at one I've heard people explain it that way. It is the finished work of Christ on the cross, uh, finished work of Christ on the earth and on the cross for our salvation. Propitiation is a big word that is used. It is a very important word. It's not used a lot nowadays, uh, which is the appeasement of God's wrath against sinners, which Christ took on for sinners. So the need for an atonement, man, and we, we talked about this a little bit, but man needed a savior because it fulfilled two things, the love and the justice of God. The most famous passage in the Bible is that way for a reason. It defines what God did, and that's John 3.16. Um, I've heard a preacher say one time that uh, the scariest thing is not that God is a judge, but God is loving. Because if God is, God is love, then he must hate sin. And, and that's where we should start our gospel presentations. God hates sin because he is all-loving. And um, the cross is, is, is what fulfilled that. A loving God would not be defined as someone who loves sin. It is, that's wicked. God loves us because of what Christ has done for us. And God being just must, must punish evildoers, which is everybody. But Christ took our place and this is called double imputation, and we'll talk about that, on the cross to bear the just wrath of God, which is propitiation. We see that in Romans three twenty three through 25. And he gave us all the benefits of sonship with God, and there will be another talk on that. It is this moment in history that Christ died not only for New Testament believers, but Old Testament believers as well. It is because of this we are saved. The gospel message is simple enough for a child to understand, but broad and deep enough to never exhaust. Quick graphic on the next page. Um, this is the great exchange, uh, double imputation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Jesus took our unrighteousness on the cross and uh, gave us his own righteousness, basically. It's the exchange of righteousness. Um, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. That's why we are said to be white as snow. And... and uh, Christ took our righteousness, which is why it took him to the cross. And quickly, was the atonement necessary? I just have that question up. Um, 
It's safe to say that there was no other way for Christ to ask that very question. Is there any other way in the Garden of Gethsemane? If there was, then I'm sure he would have gotten a response, but there was no other way for him to do this. And one more thing, this has been planned for all eternity. You can go to the next slide. This is not something that God uh, decided after the fall. This is something that has always been planned. Jesus has always been, uh, um, had always known that he was going to go to the cross. It is not something that it's a second chance or a do-over for God. Lastly, let's talk about the resurrection. Um, one of the most important doctrines that we don't talk a lot about, and we leave it, I, I leave it out a lot of times about in my gospel presentation just because I think the death of Christ is more important, but this is just as important. The resurrection is the ultimate evidence that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and this is the crux of the Christian faith. If they find the bones of Jesus, which they won't, Christianity is not true. Obviously, they won't, but this Everything points and hinges on Jesus being who he says he was. The resurrection is the teaching that Jesus, teaching that Jesus, as he said he would, was raised for our justification on the third day. The payment for sin, death, and the devil has been paid for. And uh, I'm just going to read this quote um, by J. Gresham Machen. He wrote a great book, and I encourage you to get it. It's really cheap or maybe free on Kindle. It's called Christianity and Liberalism. He was dealing with a lot of liberal theology in his day. This was 100 years ago, I believe. And um, just a great quote. I'll read it quickly. The great weapon with which the disciples of Jesus set out to conquer the world was not a mere comprehension of eternal principles. It was in a historical message, an account of something that had recently happened. It was the message, He is risen. But the message of the resurrection was not isolated. It was connected with the death of Jesus, seen now to be not a failure, but a triumphant act of divine grace. It was connected with the entire appearance of Jesus upon earth. The coming of Jesus was now understood as an act of God by which sinful men were saved. The primitive church was concerned not merely with what Jesus had said, but also and primarily with what Jesus has done, had done. The world was to be redeemed through the proclama- proclamation of an event. And with that event went the meaning of the event. And the setting forth of the event with the meaning that the event was doctrine. The two elements are always combined in the Christian message. The narration of the facts is history. The narration of the facts with meaning of the facts is doctrine. So he says here, the narration of the facts is history. And he puts in quotations, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, was crucified, died, and was buried. That's history. And then he says, in quotations, he loved me and gave himself for me. That is doctrine. Such was the Christianity of the primitive church. Moving on quickly, um, we'll just go through this really fast. Some crazy ideas of what people have said. You can go to the next slide. Of, of aberrant views of what happened in Jesus' death. Uh, people believe that um, the disciples stole the body. We see that, uh, I believe Pilate says it in Matthew 27, 62 to 66. That's why they put guards there, because they thought the disciples would try to steal the body. Uh, the Muslim view is that Jesus appeared to die, but didn't really. Surah 4 says, We killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucified him. But so it was made to appear to them, and those who differ therein are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For for of a surety they killed him not. So they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe he appeared and kind of tricked people, basically. Um, some people believe that the disciples exaggerated over years, and this would 
would coincide with people that believe that uh, the Gospels were written over many, 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 many years into the 4th and 5th century. And they believe that it's like a big fish story, basically, that it just kept getting bigger as someone else would interpret it, which is just crazy. There's no evidence for that either. And uh, there are scholars who drive cars that believe it was a mass hallucination that people were taking mushrooms or something like that, and they all just thought they saw a risen Jesus. These are people that have degrees that just want to say this. So don't believe everything that has, just because they're a doctor, don't believe them. And uh, again, we see evidence of his divinity after his, after his uh, uh, resurrection from Thomas. And, uh, and Paul tells us about the importance of the crucifixion. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says that's our message. This is of utmost importance. Um, Lastly, three things that come out of the fruit of the resurrection, justification, sanctification, and resurrection of eternal life to believers. Obviously, we are justified because of what Christ has done on the cross. We are sanctified uh, also because of the resurrection. In Romans 6, 4, and 5, and it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Paul also exhorts believers in Colossians 3 to live godly lives because of what Jesus has done. It's always pointing towards the gospel, and everything comes out of the gospel. That's why we do things. It's not just to do things to be good. Um, I think of it this way. Jesus has done this great work on my behalf. How can I not serve him? It is my greatest joy. Again, resurrection of believers to eternal life. Death has lost its sting. Uh, What a comfort. In general, the resurrection is not a doctrine that we need to learn about and defend. It is that, but it is also more. It is meant to comfort us. It is something that we can point our faith towards. We have a resurrected Lord. We can trust from one source of authority, which is the Bible, that Jesus truly is who he says he is. We can trust him for eternal life. And my last slide. To conclude, Jesus was and is fully God and fully man, sinless throughout his life up until the cross to bear our sins. And he was sent for sinners, which is everyone in this room. And um, I would like to pray for us, and then we'll go into questions if that's okay with you guys. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins. Um, Lord, help us to be something that we can worship you over, that we can find comfort in, to know that that uh, you have sent him from the beginning for us, for a people for his own possession, and that is us, Lord. Help us to be the church, Lord, and, and to live in light of this eternity for others, Lord. Let us explain this uh, clearly to people who do not know who Jesus is. Uh, and Lord, help us to strengthen our lives in every single way to lead us uh, to uh, love our neighbors as ourselves and to love God Uh, as much as we can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.